0: Father in heaven, we need an outpouring of your Holy Spirit this morning on me as well as on your people. We ask that your word come alive to our hearts and our hearts to your word, that we may receive the blessing that you have for us today. For Jesus' sake, amen. As I mentioned, our topic for today is for such a time as this It's covering the content of the book of Esther. It turns out that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned, although God is all over the book. So um, I want you to uh, begin to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We will take a helicopter look at this book, although... Um, we won't cover every verse. We will skim over the passages so we get some idea. I had a thought that the Bible and Seventh-day Adventists have looked at the Bible in terms of the cosmic conflict, the great controversy themes, and certainly the book of Esther is no exception. That theme runs also through this book, and so we're going to look at it in that context today. We'll be skimming over, as I mentioned, until we get to chapter 4. The setting is Medo-Persia, and the question is why Medo-Persia? The Bible tells us that the army of Cyrus presented itself before the walls of Babylon. The Jews held captive there saw it as a sign of deliverance from captivity and that their deliverance in fact was drawing nigh because for more than a century before his birth inspiration had mentioned Cyrus by name. Isaiah chapter 45 records some of these words and they are really quite inspirational. Things such as, thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I have held. I have called you by your name, I have named you, though you have not known me. Ellen White says that Cyrus read these words and his heart was deeply moved and he determined to fulfill his divinely appointed mission. So there was a decree that he sent out. 50,000 of the children of the captivity responded and returned to their own land. But Ellen White points out that thousands hundreds of thousands, the vast supermajority stayed behind in the land of their exile, not having zeal enough for God's house and not wanting to undergo the hardships of the return journey. One would think that despising that wonderful provision of God, that he would exclude them from the special protection of providence. But do we remember in the book of Exodus, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, Moses, the Lord said to him, the Lord, the Lord God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. That abounding in goodness in the original language means chesed. Hesed means a love that will not let you go. And so God continued Ellen White tells us through manifold agencies to plead with the exiles to return. And Zechariah pled with them, please leave Babylon now. And that's how we find ourselves in Medo Persia and the children of the captivity still present there. Ahazuharas, Xerxes the Great, he was the king, and we find him in, in uh, chapter 1. And um, in. Th- Ellen White points out that because they did not leave, now they were facing a momentous crisis. They were facing death. Chapter 1 tells us that during the third year of Xerxes the Great's reign, there was a lavish feast that was provided, lasting seven days. Everyone, great and small, was invited to this lavish feast. One thing was a problem. Queen Vashti uh, displeased the king. In fact, uh, the verse says that the king's anger burned in him against Queen Vashti. She was dismissed from her position as queen and now he needed a new queen. And uh, chapter 2 lays out for us an auditioning process uh, for having to get a new queen. Chapter 2 tells us that all these uh, women were lovely and beautiful and young. They were virgins. And there was one in particular, Esther, She was a Jew raised by her devout Jewish cousin and foster father, Mordecai, of the tribe of Benjamin. The biblical record states that she was lovely and beautiful, but she was a woman of principle possessed of remarkable self-control. What a wonderful quality to possess, self-control. She had humility and practical, noble self-sacrifice. When it was her turn to go before the king, the record says that she requested nothing. And because of her beauty and her character, she became queen. There's another key player in this story, and that is Haman. Haman uh, was a prince, and uh, he attained to an even higher position in the king's government above all the princes. Once that happened, the king uh, demanded or commanded that everyone bow down, worship him, and pay him homage. Esther chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us that uh, Mordecai refused to worship anyone but the God of heaven. And so because of that, Haman's heart was filled with wrath against Mordecai, that he did not bow to him or to worship him, and he devised a plan to execute Mordecai and to destroy All the Jews. It's quite a very dramatic punishment for someone who wouldn't worship you. In chapter 6, we find Haman again. Now he's in the outer court of the king's palace, and he wants to ask the king permission to hang Mordecai on a gallows that he had constructed. Coincidentally, the king was awake and went and spoke to him, and uh, Haman presented his request. Um, the king said to him, you know, I, I have somebody I want to honor. And Haman thinking, you know, I'm the guy. There is nobody more deserving than I am. So here's the plan, king. I want you to, to provide a royal robe that you have worn, um, a horse on which you have ridden with a crest on the horse's head and parade honoree and horse through the streets of Medo-Persia. Haman's heart was lifted up. He aspired to the highest place of honor and pursued it by destroying others. I want you to note two things. First of all, worship of Haman was commanded by the king. Secondly, Haman's heart was lifted up. There's a quote I want to read you from The Desire of Ages. It'll appear on the screen. Ellen White says that the exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. Another quote in Patriarchs and Prophets, she tells us, God desires from his creatures the service of love service that springs from an appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in forced obedience, and to all he grants freedom of will that they may render him voluntary service." It's interesting that uh, as we look at Haman, we see several principles that began to awaken in Haman's heart That is one of the principles in the cosmic conflict, and that's the principle of self-exaltation. This slide, which will come up on the screen, shows us some of these things. This is an ominous sign. (laughs) However, praise the Lord, here it is. This self-exalting principle, one of the principles in the Great Controversy. She says, little by little, Lucifer came to indulge a desire for self-exaltation. Pride in his own glory nourished the desire for supremacy. That's in the great controversy. In an Isaiah, we find words such as this. How did this happen to Lucifer? Isaiah says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, how of the morning. How has this happened? And then it was recorded a few words where it says, You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the highest. In fact, you know what? I will be like the most high. And then the last uh, line on there, I'm sorry the slide was taken off. She says that this was sin originated in self-seeking. As we look at that, we recognize that Lucifer, the principle of Lucifer, that self-exalting principle, was in the heart of Haman. Ezekiel also tells us that Lucifer was perfect in all his ways until iniquity was found in him. And what was the iniquity? The Bible tells us his heart was lifted up. This is the self-exalting principle, the self-centered principle. And in fact, this is the root the foundational principle of evil in all of our hearts. But there is another principle, and it's in Esther chapter 4, and I want you to, to turn now to Esther chapter 4. This is very important. Esther chapter 4. Esther, Job, Psalm. And in Esther chapter 4, Mordecai gets the message about what is going on, And uh, he begins to mourn in sackcloth and ashes. And Esther asks what's going on. She sends a messenger. He sends a message back that all the Jews have been commanded to be destroyed. And he gave a copy of the decree to the messenger to give to Esther. I want you to notice in verse 10 and 11 what happened at this point. Esther spoke to to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai. The command was was this. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, and that is, he would be put to death. I read in these words, Esther said, this is really scary. I'm not going to do this. I've not been called now for three months, for 30 days, I can't do this. And then we read in verses 14 and 15, something remarkable. In verse 13, it says "Then Mordecai told them to to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this." Esther begins to recognize that there is something important about this mission. This is not now just about her and her own safety and her salvation. This is for something bigger than herself and the call is going to be significant. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, once Esther heard the inspiring command of Mordecai, you have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. Verse 15 says, Esther told them to return this answer to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I can see two things going on in verse 16 and verse uh, 11. On the one hand, there's an attempt for self-preservation, and somehow by the miracle of God, by verse 16, she recognizes, you know what? There's something more important than my own life, and that is the life of my people. She begins to intercede for her people, and she develops a spirit of self-sacrifice. If I lose my life in this attempt to save my people, then so be it. The fate of an entire nation hung on that single decision to lose her life. That decision on the side of self-sacrifice was the only remedy for the self-exalting principle of Haman. I want to summarize where we've been. The Jews were now in Medo-Persia. They shouldn't have been there. God had asked them to leave and they did not leave. And by his love that will not let them go, he is now provided and is going to provide for them. There's a slide, thanks to Dan Houghton, that I want to show you. Um, It is a slide um, of Nathan Green. It's Jesus Christ interceding for the world. This picture has captivated my heart. I'm going to read the verse in the bottom of this slide. But as we look at this picture of Jesus Christ interceding for mankind, it occurred to me that as he is praying for us, He is praying because each of us in our hearts have in our hearts the principle of Haman, that's a self-exalting principle, and he's praying here. I want to read what it says. John chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The principle of self-sacrifice is a principle that is willing to lose life. I want to um, focus on the greater realities. We know the story about Esther and the outcome of that decision to save others rather than just herself. And um, I want to focus on these greater realities. There's a quote that Ellen White has in The Desire of Ages, page 20, and it says this, it will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light of Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven, that the love which seeketh not her own Has its source in the heart of God. I want to read to you something before we uh, look at this next slide, although we can put the slide up, but Jesus in Gethsemane. And um, this slide, likewise, I think is a very important slide. I want you to focus on the picture of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. I'm going to read something here from uh, The Desire of Ages. When Jesus Christ was in Gethsemane, I want you to picture him in his agony and grief and I want to read something here from The Desire of Ages. Many look on this conflict between Christ and Satan as having no special bearing on their own life. And for them it is of little interest But within the domain of every human heart, this controversy is repeated. What's the controversy? It's this idea of self-exaltation versus self-sacrifice. And why is this in the the, uh, case of Jesus Christ? In our humanity, Christ was to redeem Adam's failure. But when Adam was assailed by the tempter, note this very carefully, none of the effects of sin were upon him. That's Adam. He stood in the strength of perfect manhood, possessing the full vigor of mind and body. It was not thus with Jesus. For 4,000 years, the race had been decreasing in physical strength and in mental power and in moral worth. And Christ took upon him the infirmities of degenerate humanity. And only thus could he rescue the race. Jesus Christ was in the fight of his life and actually the conflict of the ages was for our lives. As I read through these things in, in, on Gethsemane, I want you to focus on this slide and what Jesus Christ went through. She tells us, behold him contemplating the price to be paid for the human soul. In his agony, he clings to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn farther from God. Terrible was the temptation to let the human race bear the consequences of its own guilt while he stood innocent before God. Again, the Son of God was seized with superhuman agony and fainting and exhausted, he staggered back to the place of his former struggle. His suffering was even greater than before. As the agony of soul came upon him, his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. A short time before, Jesus had stood like a mighty cedar withstanding the storm of opposition that spent its fury on him. He stood forth in divine majesty as the Son of God. Now he was like a reed beaten and bent by the angry storm. Now, she goes through some very important things, and she says here, The humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted, agonized soul. Christ even now might have refused to drink the cup apportioned to the guilty man, it was not yet too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave men to perish in his iniquity. He might say, Let the transgressor receive the penalty of a sin. I will go back to my father. Three times he prayed, Oh, my father, let this cup pass from me. But now, she says, the history of the human race comes up before the world's Redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin, the woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. He beholds its impending fate and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. Doesn't this sound just like Esther? If I perish, I perish. And his decision was made. I want to tell you that as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a message that is so powerful to be given to the world, and I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. This quote in in the Christ Object Lessons, page 415, in case it doesn't come up on the screen right away, Ellen White says in this quote, It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. She says, at this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. The last rays of merciful light. The last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Elsewhere, Ellen White points out uh, that the message that was given in the, at the Minneapolis General Conference, she said that that message portrayed and proclaimed an uplifted Savior, Um, that presented not only justification, but asked us to receive the righteousness of Christ made obedient to all the commandments of God. Brothers and sisters, I believe that today the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been raised up for such a time as this to present a message that's illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. As we um, contemplate these things, we are aware that there are in our own hearts things that are vying for supremacy and um, self-sacrifice versus a self-emptying principle. And so um, I wanted to look a little bit at the disciples themselves. Up until Thursday afternoon of Passion Week, Jesus appeared to be a failure. Some people thought that perhaps he was successful, and that was because he had done a few miracles and and a few things like that, but as he looked at his life, it was the last week of his life, and uh, for all intents and purposes, few people really comprehended. What his ministry really was all about if you had one week and you were at the very last week of your ministry after three and a half years and your disciples who would spread the gospel carry on your work had no idea what you were up to how would you feel jesus was about to face the cross and his disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest and for three and a half years with them jesus christ had spent that time trying to explain this principle of self-sacrifice and self-emptying love and service. By any rational measure he was a failure. As they argued about who was the greatest, this wasn't a little issue. It was the issue that had started all of sin in the first place. And after three and a half unsuccessful years of publicly demonstrating the principle of selfless service, Jesus said, I'll try it one more day. It was going to be the most stunning example of faith that the universe has ever seen, faith that God was right, faith that this would work, faith that somehow in the hearts and minds of humanity, we would grab hold of this principle of self-sacrifice, self-emptying love, and we would be transformed. And yet, Jesus, in the next 24 hours, what he was to do wasn't going to be the same as he'd always done, yes? He demonstrated the principle of selfless service one more day, but this time, he went to the extreme. He was all in, sink or swim. Selflessness would forever be defined by what he was to do in those next 24 hours. There's a graph that I'd like to show. It's called a hockey stick graph. And this graph shows something that I think is is important. If you look at this hockey stick graph, you see the horizontal line where something is going on. This graph has been used to demonstrate things like temperature changes or poverty changes and those kinds of things. But I want to use this graph to demonstrate what happened in the life of Jesus, the three and a half years, and then that final day. If you look at the horizontal line, that's the shaft of the hockey stick. Nothing is going on. But all of a sudden, some event happens, and as you see that line going up diagonally there, something dramatic happened. And I want to tell you that what happened in the experience of disciples had to be the uplifted Savior. We know the story of Gethsemane, the betrayal. Uh, We talked about some of the pastors in Gethsemane. Um, But Jesus Christ, on the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the disciples are witness to some of these things. And I just want to read some of the things Ellen White said about this. She says that the guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of his son with consternation. She says that the withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. She said that Satan wrung... Satan with his fierce temptations wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. All these things were weighing in on Jesus as he was facing the final hour. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not an act. He felt abandoned, forsaken of God. This example of selflessness is the ultimate gift of Jesus to the universe not just because he was saving mankind in the process, but because the influence of selflessness is the greatest gift that he could give to anyone. And why is that? Because the light of Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and for heaven, that the love that seeketh not her own has its source in the heart of God. That influence, sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then shone forth with a clarity impossible to achieve before then, changing the lives and hearts of the 11 disciples forever, and changing the world and the universe as well. At 9.30 on a July evening in 1988, a disastrous explosion and fire happened on an oil-drilling platform in the North Sea off the coast of Scotland. 166 crew members and two rescuers died. There were 63 crew members that survived. One of them was Andy Mochan, a superintendent on the rig. The explosion and the alarms awakened him, and he was badly hurt, but he escaped from his quarters to the edge of the platform. As he looked down 15 stories into the cold, frigid waters of the North Sea, he saw twisted steel and debris littered on the surface of the water. And he knew that if he jumped, he would survive 20 minutes without rescue. He looked to his right hand and he saw flames. He looked on his left hand and he saw flames. He looked behind him and he saw flames and he made a decision to jump into the frigid waters. When he was asked, why did you jump into the frigid waters? He said, well, I faced two possibilities. One of them was possible death or certain death. I could jump or fry. So I decided to jump. If we look at the life of Queen Esther, her burning platform was recognizing that the life of her people were in jeopardy. And the question is, what will our burning platform be? Ellen White makes a comment before we show the last two slides. She says that the heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. Millions upon millions have never so much as heard of God or of his love revealed in Christ. It is their right to receive this knowledge, to answer their cry. To every household upon whom has shown the light of the gospel comes at this crisis the question put to Esther the queen at that momentous crisis in Israel's history. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? But then she continues with two paragraphs that I want to read to you, that I want to be on the screen, because these I think are a burning platform. Those who think of hastening the or hindering the gospel, think of it in relation to themselves. And to the world. Few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with His manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought. To the heart of God. Every departure from the right, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. Our world is a vast, laser house, a scene of misery that we dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell upon. Did we realize it as it is, the burden would be too terrible, yet God feels it all. In order to destroy sin and its results, he gave his best beloved and he has put it in our power through cooperation with him to bring the scene of misery to an end. Brothers and sisters, I believe that we have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.